Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Amen. We serve a God who is unchangeable, unshakable, unstoppable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he can be trusted. We can trust his words. We can trust his actions, that they are all good for us, uh, and that they will all bring him glory. Uh, thank you all for, for worshiping. Thank you to, uh, I didn't know Hillsong Worship was going to be in the building this morning. So thank you, Eden, for singing and for leading us in worship. I, I, I just want to share this. Uh, there was just something about hearing um, the children in our church say that they are children of God, that they know who they are. They are who God says they are. And and that's a song that we sing often, but to see our children singing that and declaring it with all their heart and soul and mind, that was truly beautiful and touched uh, my heart specifically. So thank you, Eden and Moses and James and Peter and everybody else who sang this morning and for leading us to the throne of God in worship. Let's pray together before we continue in our worship service. Lord, thank you for giving us an opportunity to to worship you as as king. You are higher than anything else in this world. You are higher than anything in this universe. But you are also a, a king who chooses to serve. And as a king who chooses to serve, you stoop down low. The immortal becomes mortal. The God who is above all else chooses to become a human being, taking on our skin and bone. And so, God, we praise you and adore you for teaching us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ how we should live in this world, but also how we get to God and how we restore relationship with God. As we look at Mark chapter 12 this morning, oh God, open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you. We want to be changed by you. We want your Holy Spirit to do a new work in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, and in our bodies. Um, So God, we believe that you will do that through your word this morning. And we pray, oh God, that you would come down and have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I couldn't find that in your Apple Music library. Uh Uh-oh. Siri thought I was talking to her. Let me just... Turn this down a little bit. I said spirit, not Siri. I was asking for the spirit. So, uh, all right. So let us continue in our worship service by um, reading from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 12. And uh, Mark chapter 12, we've been going through the book of Mark. If you've been here at our church since the beginning of the year. Our theme for this year is learning to serve with joy in our place of calling. And because of that, we, we, we decided it would be necessary for us to actually figure out who it is that we serve. Who are we serving with joy in our different places of calling? And that person is Jesus Christ. And so we'll be continuing in our story in the book of Mark. Mark is one of the Gospels um, that is written accounting some of the works of Jesus Christ and his teachings. 
And so we're here in Mark chapter 12. What's happened before Mark chapter 12? If you remember last week, Brandon preached about Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry as it's popularly known. So as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he doesn't enter the way the people expect him to. You know, he's a conquering king, but he enters not on a horse. He enters on a donkey. Not even a regular donkey, on the actual, like, foal of a donkey. So a young donkey. And Brandon painted the picture of us of how ridiculous this would have looked because a grown person sitting on the child of a donkey riding in doesn't look very kingly. Uh, but actually looks ridiculous. But that's the way that Jesus shows that his kingdom is not the kingdom that is expected. He is going to be king, but he's going to usher in his kingdom through humility and service. And so the people are screaming, Hosanna, deliver us, save us, O king. Save us from the Roman Empire. Save us from the oppression that we are experiencing. And they expect Jesus to do this by overthrowing the Roman government. But Jesus has a different idea of what it means to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So the people are laying down their garments before Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers and religious leaders of the time are looking at all of this. And they question Jesus and they ask him, on whose authority do you do these things? And of course, Jesus, like the master teacher that he is, responds to them very differently. He asks them questions, questions that really come to a place where uh, he's able to defend himself. He asks them a question and he says, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are thinking to themselves and they say, well, if we say the baptism of John was from God, then Jesus is justified because John had prophesied about Jesus being the Messiah. But if we say it's from human beings, they knew that the people of Israel really admired John as a prophet. And if they said, well, this wasn't from God, they would have to contend to the people who would be angry with them. And so Jesus asked them these questions and they say, well, we don't know. We don't know if this was from God or if this was from man. And so Jesus says, well, I won't tell you whose authority I am doing all of these things under. And so that's what's happening before we enter into Mark chapter 12. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus doesn't uh, dismiss the religious leaders there, but he actually wants to use this as a moment to teach them. And so he tells them a parable. He tells them this story that draws on things from the earth that they're living in to tell a heavenly meaning. And so he tells the story and he says, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away. And it continues in verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. So we'll stop there for now. Jesus is telling them a story, and it's a story of the vineyard and the vine growers. So think of it as a story about 
uh, the vineyard and the vine growers. So Jesus wants the religious leaders of the day to see themselves in this story. He wants them to actually identify with the characters in this story. So he tells this story of a man who owns a vineyard. Now that man, as we look at the passage, that man represents God. God owns the vineyard, and God has tended this vineyard. God has created everything that's needed for this vineyard to produce grapes and to produce fruit. A lot of people look back to Old Testament prophets like Isaiah. If you look in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah compares the people of Israel to a vineyard that God has planted and that God is tending. But unfortunately, that vineyard goes against God's will and produces sour grapes instead of sweet grapes. So Jesus is hearkening back to that prophecy and telling them this story. He tells a story where there are servants or tenants or farmers who are given this land by the owner of the land. And there are also servants of the owner of the land who are sent at a certain time to reap the harvest or at least get a small portion of the harvest from the folks whom it was rented to. So these religious leaders, Jesus identifies as the servants in the story, but not the servants that are coming from the owner of the vineyard to collect, but the servants who have been lended this land, this land that God has prepared. God has prepared it in a way that it builds fruits. God has dug everything that is needed for this vineyard. God has built a tower so that it can be watched and protected, and he has given it and lent it to the people of Israel so that it produces fruit that can feed everybody. But unfortunately, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were all people who God had entrusted this very sacred vineyard to, but they had not stewarded the vineyard like they were supposed to. They had used the vineyard as a place where they did injustice instead of performing justice. The vineyard, which is the nation of Israel, had become a place where the widow and the orphan and the immigrant were oppressed instead of being taken care of by the resources that God had given. So he compares them to the workers in the vineyard who are beating every servant that God sends. So every prophet that God sends that gives them this message, this message that says the vineyard is prepared for you to produce fruit. Produce fruit of justice and love and mercy and kindness and goodness. But instead you're producing other fruits, sour grapes, grapes that are not worthy of God's calling on your life. What ends up happening is the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees question these servants that are sent. So they did so with the prophet John, Jesus' cousin. And by association, Jesus is also saying to them, you're also doing that with me right now. A prophet that's been sent from God to tell you the ways of God, the way that God desires you to live. And instead of listening to that prophet and doing what the prophet says so that your fruit can be evident, they choose to ignore what Jesus says. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this story, it's very easy for me to think that I am one of the servants that God has sent to get some of the produce from the vine. 
I always like to identify with the best people in the story. But the truth is, when we look at ourselves as Christians, as people who are wanting to follow Jesus, as people who desire to be good in this world, a lot of times it's the other servants that really reflect who we are. The servants who get that message from Christ about producing fruit of love, producing fruit of grace, producing fruit of justice, but instead turn the other way. We receive the commandments from God that ask us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. And instead of doing those things wholeheartedly, we turn the other way. And so we're actually like the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees in this chapter. People who question Jesus' authority, right? When we read in scripture that Jesus commands us to do these things, to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves, I'll be honest, many, many times I question that authority. Maybe I don't say it with my words, but my actions definitely show that I'm not living fully under the authority of Jesus. I ask him questions about like, well, Jesus, you know, loving, like, is that even possible? Is it possible to love my neighbor as I love myself? Well, Jesus, I'm really busy. Like, I don't even have like as much time as this requires, you know, between like putting my kids to bed and working for money and actually serving you in this church. uh, Where am I going to have time to love my neighbors as myself? So we're like the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees questioning Jesus' command and not producing the fruit that Christ wants us to produce in life. But you see, Jesus reminds us that really what it means to follow him, it's not about being religious in the way that it just shows to everybody. Learning to follow God and being in God's kingdom, he says, is about love, about loving God with everything. And so he continues in verse 28. We're going to skip a few verses and go to verse 28 and we'll come back. He says this. One of the scribes, hearing Jesus teach about what it means to be in the kingdom, came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself and love God with everything that you are. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when I think of heart, soul, mind, and strength, um, what does it mean to love God with all your heart? With all your heart. So I, I think this is how I think of it. I'm not sure if it's the right way, but loving God with all your heart, that means loving God with all your emotions. So every single emotion that you have, 
should actually scream love for God. So even your anger, even when you're angry, people should be able to see that you love God. When we're joyful, when we're sad, when we lament, we should be able to show people that we still are people who love God with all of who we are. So every emotion that we have should love the Lord our God. How about your soul? Your soul is that thing that's like the very life, life and breath itself. So just your being, your essence, that should point people to God and to love for God. Everything about who you are, your life, your breath, should point others to who God is. And there's a nice picture there from the Disney Pixar movie Soul, uh, which shows uh, a person whose uh, character is depicted as this sort of bluish, greenish, uh, amorphous thing. But it, it's, it's actually really cool how they show it because this is the very life of this person himself, right? So your very life, your essence, your breath should show that you love God. And then your mind, right? Every thought, everything that you think should show that you love God, but also everything you use your mind to do. So that shows us that there is nothing in this world, no work in this world that we can't use to show God that we love him. So whether you are an engineer and you use your mind for engineering types of things, or a doctor or a lawyer, whether you are a teacher or a student, your mind and every thought that you have should point to love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then strength. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. When I think of strength, I think of actions. So every action that we have, everything that we do in this life should point people to the love of God, should show people that we truly love God. And in telling this commandment to the people, Jesus is showing them that God is looking for us not to love with just some of him, but all of him. All of us should communicate love for God. As I'm reading this passage, I'm like, who am I listening to here? Am I listening to Jesus or John Legend, right? Because it's like, all of me should love all of you, and all of you should love all of me. But that's it. We are complete human beings, and every part of us should love God. Every emotion, our essence and being, every thought that we have, and the way we use those thoughts during our days, and every action that we have should communicate love for God. And the second commandment connects to this because it says every emotion and every breath and every thought and every action should also communicate love to our neighbors. So Christ is calling us to do more than just be nice to people. Christ is calling us to love people deeply, to love them compassionately, to love them as we love ourselves, to use our breath and our mind and thoughts and our emotions and our actions to love the people around us. That's the good fruit 
that God requires of the vineyard that he has given us to tend. Not just nice fruit, but really good, loving, wholesome fruit. So he continues in the story. Let's go back to uh, verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus continues this parable where he says, he still had one other. So the owner of the vineyard has sent all these servants to come and to try to get the good fruit from the vineyard. And they're beaten, they're struck down, and they're killed. But the owner of the vineyard has another idea, and he says, well, I I still have one person. I still have an ace in the back pocket, so I'm going to play this card. Finally, he sent his son, his beloved son. He said, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Come and destroy the vineyard and give the vineyard to others. Well, that's a very um, humbling, humbling statement, right? To say that God has entrusted us with this vineyard. But if we are not loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, that God is able to come and strip every good thing that he has given us away from us because we're not being good stewards of those things. And then he's going to give it to other people, to other people who are truly living in the kingdom. And living for the king. So essentially what he's saying here and what he's commanding the people is that it's important not just to be adjacent to the kingdom. It's important to be actually in the kingdom. Because that's what he tells the scribe who comes up to him and asks these things. Because the scribe knows these things. He knows that he's supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourselves. But what Jesus sees that is missing in the scribe is that this is a person who knows it in his mind, maybe knows it a little bit in his heart, but this is not a person whose entire life and whose actions are actually communicating that he loves God and he loves his neighbor as himself. And so Jesus says to this scribe, uh, words that are very, very, very hard to hear. In fact, I think even harder to hear than Jesus actually just coming out and saying, hey, you're not in the kingdom at all. What Jesus says to the scribe is, you've answered right, but you're, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. So you're not in the kingdom, but you're adjacent to the kingdom. You're just near it but you're still missing out. Think about it this way. Let's say your team gets to the final game of the NCAA tournament, right? But then they end up losing. They end up losing in the final game of the tournament. A lot of people say that's actually worse than losing in the first round because you've come so close 
so close to getting all the good fruit of all your labor, but you miss it out in the end. And so Jesus says to the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom. But that's a telling statement because it says to the scribe, you've done everything in your power to be close to the kingdom of God. But unfortunately, you're still missing the mark. You're still not in the kingdom of God because you're trying to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, not with the Lord's empowering, but with the way that you think you can do it on your own. And Christ looks at this scribe and says, you're not far from the kingdom, but unfortunately, you're not in it either. Church, are we not far from the kingdom? There's a lot that we can do that can make us look religious and can make us look like we know the words of Jesus Christ. But if we're not putting them into action, if we're not fully loving God with all of who we are and loving our neighbors, not just being nice to our neighbors, but actually loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, then we're not different from the scribe in this passage. And Jesus says the same words to us. You're not far from the kingdom, but you're also not in it. You're not far from the kingdom, but you're also not in it. But, but here's the good news that Jesus also gives in this parable. As he's telling them this parable, he tells them of a cornerstone. He tells them of the way that they can actually be in the kingdom and not just be next to it. So he quotes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm of salvation. This is a psalm that is written in a time where the psalmist is dealing with a lot of stress in their life. And the psalmist is, is telling Jesus or telling God, the Lord, this is who you are. Have you not read this scripture, Jesus quotes? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So as Jesus is telling this story, this story where the son, the son of the owner of the vineyard is finally sent to the people, sent to the tenants, sent to the people who God is expecting a return from. And instead of welcoming the son and respecting the son, they end up killing the son. Jesus points to this action and says, in their rejection of the son of God, in their rejection of the most important person that the father or the owner of this vineyard could send, they actually have created a situation where the sun can actually shine. The stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone. But Jesus is also teaching something about himself because he's saying he is about to experience the same rejection and pain of being sent from God to this world, to everybody who thinks they're religious, who reject him and don't accept him. And he's saying to us that even in those spaces, he 
is going to become the cornerstone. And the idea of a cornerstone is this. The cornerstone is a stone that's used in architecture or in building where every other stone in the house is oriented to. So you can see some different examples of cornerstones. One's a little cleaner, but there's one that just shows that this is a stone where every single stone in the house must align to that stone. And so Jesus is saying this about himself. But he's also saying that through his death, and his death is going to be very different than the death of the son in the story he's telling, because the son in the story that Jesus is telling is seized against his own will and put to death. But Jesus shows that he rises above the son in this story because Jesus is a God who is not going to be seized, but who will lay down his life willingly. Jesus is a son who will lay down his life willingly so that everybody in this story, the servants who have gone before and have been killed, the servants who are actually seizing the son and killing him, everybody is able to experience the salvation that God requires because of the willing sacrifice that Jesus is about to make on the cross for the sins of the world. And Jesus says, this is God's doing. This is God's doing and it's marvelous. It's marvelous in our eyes. That's our story as Christians. Our story as Christians is not that we are the faithful servants who have been killed. Our story as Christians is we are the servants who received the words of God and rejected them. We are the servants who received God's teaching to us to be good and to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we rejected that teaching. We rejected it and we tried to build our houses in our own image without a cornerstone that could point us in the right direction. But thanks be to God, even in our rejection, Jesus Christ remains the cornerstone. And the stone that we rejected has become the stone that our whole lives are pointing towards. And so we can love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and point every single thing about who we are, our emotions, our thoughts, our actions, and every breath towards Jesus Christ and his salvation for us. Jesus Christ, the stone that we reject, has become the cornerstone of our lives, the cornerstone of his church, and the cornerstone of this world. Christ alone is our cornerstone. Christ alone is the one that we should be looking to pattern our lives after. Christ alone is the one who can heal us. So that's the cornerstone. Well, if, if, if we're not supposed to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that Jesus is talking to, then how are we supposed to live where our lives actually point in the right direction, in the direction that the cornerstone is giving us? So Jesus continues in his story in verse 38, and he says this. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts 
who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. Instead, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums of money, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus looks to the scribes and says, you are not the example of what it means to be located squarely in the kingdom of God. He calls his disciples and says to them, look at the widow, not the scribe or the Pharisee or the religious leader. Look at the widow. And it's not because of the amount that people are giving, right? It's because of the posture with which she gives. The widow knows that she has nothing. The widow is poor in finances, but also poor in spirit. She is humble. The widow knows that everything she has has been given to her by God to steward. The widow knows that God has called her to produce sweet grapes and not sour grapes. The widow recognizes that without the cornerstone, her building will collapse. So Jesus says to his disciples, be like the widow in this story. Be like the widow and understand that you are called to give your entire heart, soul, mind, and strength to God. Be like the widow and let everything you are and everything you have point towards love for God and love for your neighbor. So don't be like the scribe. Because if you're like the scribe, you might be making it rain with your $100 bills, but Jesus will tell you, you're not far from the kingdom. Your kingdom adjacent. You're close to the kingdom, but you're not in the kingdom. But if you're like the widow who recognizes your poverty, and recognizes that the only place that strength comes to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself is from God and Jesus Christ himself, then you'll be able to give of everything that you have to the work that God wants you to do in this world. And know that God is a God who multiplies. He is a God who can take the widow's pennies and produce great fruit. God is the God who multiplies. He is the God who can take the few grapes that the widow places at his feet and make it into wine that can feed an entire wedding banquet. Know that God is a God who multiplies. No matter how small the gifts we bring to our God are, if we do them from a place of love for God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength, and if we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, then God will richly multiply the gifts that we bring to him for our good and for his glory. So God says, who's in the kingdom? 
It is not the scribe who is proud of what they have, but it's the widow who understands what she doesn't have and gives it freely to a God who can give her everything. So church, my encouragement to us today is that God is calling us to love him with everything. Let's be like the widow. Let's recognize Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and that in the rejection that we gave him, we have found that he is the only one that worth that our lives are worth pattering after. Let's go to Jesus. Let's live for him. Let's live like him. Let's allow him to dictate how we use our finances, how we use our homes, how we use our minds and our words and our actions. And let's know that if we follow the Lord God with humility, that God will multiply and bring his kingdom of justice and wholeness and peace and love on earth as it is in heaven. To God be all the glory, honor, dominion, and power. So here are some questions for us to reflect on as we finish our time together. What areas of your life do you need to love God and neighbor better? So think personally, what are some areas of your life where you need to love God and neighbor better? Maybe you're a person who loves God well with your mind, but your actions don't show it. What's an area of your life where you need to love God better? Maybe you're a person who loves God well with your emotions, but your mind is far from him. What areas of life do you need to love God and love neighbor better? Second question, as a church community, so as this body of people that gathers here and gathers in homes throughout the week and connects on a daily basis in neighborhoods and workplaces, as a church community, where do we need to love God and neighbor better? What are some places where, as a community, we may not be loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves? Or it could be, what's a place where we're doing a decent job, but it's only kingdom adjacent. It's not really in the kingdom. As a church community, where do we need to love God and neighbor better? And lastly, because we know Christ is the cornerstone, Christ doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't already equip us to do. So how is Christ calling and empowering you or us as a church to love God and love our neighbors this week? How is Christ calling us to really be the stewards that he has empowered to love God and love our neighbors well this week? Uh, let's take a few seconds to think through this, to write things down. Uh, and I actually want to try something different today. And hopefully it works. Maybe it won't work. Uh, if after our 30 seconds of silence, you feel God stirring in you to share where God is calling you to love him and love neighbor better, or where God might be calling our church to love him and love our neighbors better. Uh, I want to leave maybe just like three minutes for us to, to share that publicly with everybody. And if, uh, if we don't have anybody share, then I will do a good job of like giving an option for us to try. So let's be silent before God and let the spirit of God speak to us about ways that we can love 
him more and love our neighbors as ourselves. All right, church, if anybody heard from God or heard from the Spirit this morning and is willing to share with our church, um, there's a microphone right here. Feel free to come up or I can bring this to you. Good morning, church. I'm Olivia. This is my husband, Sasset, over there. Um, I was just thinking that in order to love God and love people, we need to know God and know people. And we moved into our first home nine months ago, and I just realized I don't know a single one of my neighbors um, because of my busy work schedule. So I'm going to, and sorry, babe, I haven't told you this yet, but I'm going uh, <laughs> to bake some baked goods and, and walk around Easter Day and try to meet some of my neighbors and, and get more integrated into the community God has blessed me with. So. Amen. Thank you, Olivia. Uh, let's do one more. Uh, the, the thing I sensed from the Lord in, in the prayer was, um, first I, I felt like I heard the voice, uh, take every thought captive to him, make every thought captive to him. And um, I thought about um, just from the beginning of my day to the end of the day, submitting everything to him. And not just by a prayer time, by one prayer time, okay. as good as that can be, but just the ongoing, just as I go through the day, Lord, uh, lead me in this, uh, bless this, show, show me what you want to do, just bringing everything before him. I thought of that, that verse, that, that call to um, pray continuously mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, just to walk in that kind of way, submitting to him. Amen. Thank you, Saul. Well, church, uh, I encourage you uh, throughout this week or even after the service, just uh, if you can share with people what God laid on your heart. But this is not the end of the conversation about loving God with everything that we are and loving our neighbors as ourselves. But uh, just feel free to share that with people. Um, feel free to share it. Sorry, Brandon, I'm putting you on the spot. But share uh, anything you heard about like our church or us to Pastor Brandon, you know, and, and let's think about ways that even as a church body, we can learn to love God better and also love uh, our neighbors as ourselves better. And remember, church, God gives grace. God gives his power and his spirit. So there's nothing that we want to do or that God has convicted us to do um, today that God will not give us the strength to do. And let's hold each other accountable. Let's ask questions about, uh, have you baked those cookies? So next week, Olivia might be asking you some of those questions. Uh, feel free to step outside of your zip code as well with some of those big goods. Um,
But let's, let's continue to encourage one another. This is not a journey that we are on alone. God has given us this community to walk this journey together. Um, we are all vine dressers. We are all servants in God's vineyard. And God uh, has empowered us through each other to do the work that he has called us to do. Uh, may God continue to bless us as we continue to worship him this morning. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.